welcome to All the Light We Can Carry. I'm Mary Lee Stark. I'm with here with my co-host Linnea Brand and Leah Wilcox. And today we have a guest with us. Her name is Carla Hylison. She's a good friend of mine and super excited that she's joining us. Just was thinking a little bit how I could introduce Carla. And as I was thinking about Carla, the the person that came to my mind actually was Doris Day. <laughs> Because Doris Day was just fun and playful and lighthearted, and she was in a lot of musicals, and I think that all kind of embodies Carla. One of the favorite things to me about being around her is being at her house. I think I value it because I struggle with being playful, and I see her being playful like all the time with her kids. And also, just randomly in the middle of a conversation, sometimes she'll just burst into a little song, like sing a sentence <laughs> and tie it into the conversation. And it's kind of like stepping into a musical. And I, I just deeply admire anybody who can be uninhibited in a moment like that and just not care and just have fun. She's a great example to me in those ways. So I'm excited for her to get to be in this conversation with us. We are continuing to discuss some of the small and simple virtues that help us to make big changes in our lives. And today we're discussing humility. I listened to this guy and it was really interesting. He was an atheist, but it really struck me because they were talking about some of the big problems in the world. And even though he's an atheist, he said, one of the things that I really admire about Christians is that their emphasis on humility. He said, because because they emphasize that that we're all flawed, that none of us are perfect, that we're all kind of falling short and we we need a savior. He said that emphasis is lost in the rest of the world. And he was just commenting on how it's actually a really important virtue. Like if we want to be able to listen to others and really hear other people and be able to learn ourselves and not get kind of stuck in an intellectual rut, <laughs> then humility is essential. And I just thought that that was really interesting that somebody who is not a faith at all could still come around and be like, yeah, this is a virtue that it's small and simple and overlooked, but yet it, it could make a profound discourse in the world that we lived in. And so to kind of kick things off, I wanted to ask each of you, as you did the study and the research into humility that you did, kind of two things. First, how would you have defined humility just off the cuff before your research? And then after your research, would you add any new layers of meaning and understanding to that or definitions to the, what humility means to you now? Leah, can we start with you? Oh, I was afraid you were going to say that. I feel like I just got caught in class and I didn't do my homework. <laughs> um, I read things about humility. Merely, you shared some things. And some of the things that you sent are from a class that's for people who are trying to recover from addictions and how key humility is in that. That sort of surprised me because actually what I had thought about and considered prior to you sending that was more of a like, how do I understand humility by looking at the contrast to humility or its opposite, which is pride, because I've just been really intrigued with what does it mean to be stripped of pride? And how can I understand humility through that lens? That's kind of where my mind was going. And then when I read those things, I just thought, oh, of course, 
in order to have like open conversations that help us to learn and explore, we can't be really settled in where we're at. We have to have the sense of there being more and that change is something that we might desire because as we, as we learn, typically for me, that learning process suggests change. <laughs> like, oh, if I, if I know something new, I generally want to act on it. And that means doing something different and, and overcoming patterns that are destructive I can see how having this sense that an acknowledgement of there being a better option and a desire to learn what it is, how, how to get there. It's hard to say something's wrong with what I'm doing. There's a better way. Linnea, what about you? Like, where was your kind of starting place and what are some of the layers of definition you might add to the word humility? Well, on a journey... And being a parent is just an excellent way <laughs> to be tutored in becoming humble. Like if, if you think you're all that for any length of time, it'll so bite you. The exercise of learning humility for me, more or less up to this point, has been somewhat painful. But I was listening to a talk that you referenced, Dallin H. Oaks, is talking about how our strengths can actually be our downfall if we're not humble, essentially. If we make it too precious and too important and derive too much, I don't know, self-satisfaction out of any strength that we have, it, you know, it's like our Achilles heel. And, you know, I'm listening. He had example after example after example. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my goodness, all these examples. And then there was just one moment where I just realized I've kind of been struggling with consistent daily prayer like I pray a lot but like I you know I'm, I'm still like spurts and starts and and feeling kind of sad about that and it just the thought came to me just really gentle and sweet that this is sort of a protection this is a way to avoid self-deception and that you know that great downfall that happens when we get wrapped up in how cool, you know, this idea is or, or our embracing of this or that idea or this or that strength. If we're like daily conferencing with God, you know, and, and relying on him, on his, on the perspective that he gives us. And I mean, it came to me in a really sweet way, not in a, like a, well, you should be, you know, shame on you for not doing this, but just in a way where I was kind of like, oh, that would be good. I would like that. I love that you brought up that, that talk about the strengths, our strengths can become our downfall because it really struck me reading that. Sometimes it's so frustrating to me that, that a strength and a weakness seem to be the flip side of each other. So for example, like at work, I can be really, really flexible sometimes and like go with the flow and I really like to be super accommodating. I want to make everything work for everybody. <laughs> And sometimes that's probably good. <laughs> and other times that means there's no boundaries, no predictability. <laughs> People can take advantage of that. It, there's a lot of potential strengths, but the flip side of them is a weakness. And I thought, well, I think God must do that on purpose. <laughs> wrapped up in your strengths, he's going to be like, okay, and here's a weakness wrapped up in it so that you run 
when you're exploring your strengths and feeling really good about them so that you inevitably will stumble purposely because you run up against the weakness that's inherent in that strength and it makes you take pause and not be so arrogant <laughs> and not be so full of yourself and to recognize, oh, yeah, this strength needs some tempering. It needs some refining. That's probably the better word. There's more nuance to that than we might think. And that weakness is kind of like a, a the underbelly of your strength that is quietly there. That weakness, it makes itself known to you sometimes in really important ways. I think key there, at least like when, as I was thinking about it, as I was listening to the talk, and actually this kind of dovetailed for me in just recent experiences and how I'm processing them, I can see that, you know, it's good to be, like you said, flexible and amiable and amenable. But if it's about wanting to please others and feel good, it's sort of a popularity thing. Yeah, wanting people to like you, then it's suddenly you've like switched off humility. Humility is out of the picture. And suddenly, just like you said, there's that underbelly and that strength becomes a weakness. The minute, the minute that you make the focus about sort of somehow gratifying your like desire to be cool or appreciated or whatever, yeah. It's like the carnal man is like any time that you're you're using your strength to satisfy kind of the desires and hungers of of the carnal man or the fallen man, then that's probably, I love that you said that because I had never thought that before. Like our weakness flips into our strengths versus using our strengths to glorify God and do his work versus satisfying our, I mean, lust is a big word, but I think that's what it is. It's a, or lusts. If I reduced it in my thoughts, which I tried to do, to me, the essence of humility, and again, my brain often works in contrast, but is the opposite of self-centered, which is other-centered, which is in reality Christ-centered, because in as much as you've done it to others, even the least of these, then you've done it to me. That's how I try to reduce it in my mind. Like Linnea said, the motives help me to see humility or or self, you know, or self gratification. I guess. Carla, what about you? Well, it immediately brought me back to when I was young and I was learning a little bit about humility, and I always thought it was like being teachable, being able to be open to learning, and I think that's pretty basic, but I also feel like, um, as I've been studying more about it, that it's more about kind of about others, like service too, because as you're humble, you're able to help keep peace. You're able, and maybe that's coming to my mind because lately I've had some situations where my pride starts creeping in or I start feeling angry about a choice that someone else is making that affects me and how to deal with that. So in my body, and my mind, I'm thinking, oh, I am so mad right now. Like, why would you do this? Why would you hurt me? Not intentionally. I know it's not malicious, but it's just this thing that affects me and it hurts. And I felt the spirit whispering to me that the bigger picture here, this might be their weakness, 
but I need to be humble and looking at the definition that I found is recognize gratefully our dependence on the Lord, constant need of his support, and an acknowledgement that our talents and abilities are gifts from God. And so thinking about those things of the bigger picture, and it's funny because I just had to give a talk on Sunday about the greatest possession and about the rich young man who kept, he kept the commandments, he did what he was supposed to do, and then when the Lord asked him to leave all of his possessions and follow him, he was like, oh, I don't think I can do that. And, and I think of this with my pride and my anger. I think, I think it's a safety net thing for me. If I let go of that pride, then I'm like giving up this, you know, I make myself vulnerable. I make myself maybe accepting what that person did to me or something. But I keep on having this feeling that let it, you know, they still have to be responsible for what they did, but you need to let that go and forgive and to be humble and let me teach you. But then I also think of the blessings that that gives to other people as I'm humble. It releases that contention. It um, avoids the contention and it helps to be more like the Savior and helping bring peace and overcoming this issue. I'm not there yet. Who wants to say on a podcast about humility? Yeah, I so, I've so nailed it. I don't remember who gave that talk about climbing the mountain. It's such a hard journey. Climb every mountain. (laughs) And then you see like this huge view that's just beautiful and it's peaceful. And I feel like, oh, I want that. I'm willing to go there, but I know it's going to be really hard and I know I'm going to make mistakes along the way but I guess that's where I'm grateful for that humility like relying on the Lord you know I don't know everything I feel like he knows and he knows what this other person needs to so if I do my try to do my part rely on him then that helps to resolve and to heal that hurt and bring light to others let them feel the love of Christ during that as well we all benefit from it it's a win-win I just want to throw in really quick in conjunction with what Carla is saying. You kind of alluded to the there being some vulnerability. You've mm-hmm. been hurt and to actually be open enough to let go of that hurt and to see beyond that and see this opportunity for yourself to learn and for there to be healing instead of contention. I, I think that's part of this, what's been sort of stewing in my brain, like that vulnerability, I think I associate with being stripped of pride. Like I think the imagery of stripping is interesting, like taking it all. (laughs) I mean, if you strip furniture, but even the, like you almost feel naked, like uh, can I let go of that? Because sometimes pride feels, even if it's a lie, I think holding on to that you're not broken, which is to say choosing not to see the weakness choosing not to feel like there's an underbelly to this or or choosing not to think, well, yeah, I was hurt, but what can I learn from this? Or did I contribute in any way? Am I a total victim? Or whatever uh, might be sort of a hard place to get to because of that vulnerability. I, I feel like what you shared, Carla, taps into this place of what is humility that my brain's been sort of using in. I really like that issue you mentioned healing as well. And I think that humility requires a ton of courage, like a ton of courage, but that it's also 
the pathway to healing because I guess I thought before about humility, like Carla, a lot about being open to learning, being teachable. And I think that that's a really important aspect of it. But I guess I had not, at least recently, not fully explored this idea of total surrender to God and what the implications of that are, like how that might feel, what that journey might be like. And I mean, ultimately, I came to the conclusion so that to exercise humility would be to walk with God daily. Mm. Because I, mm. I, it made me think of Enoch's mission call. And at, at the very end of that mission call, God says, walk with me. <laughs> when I served a mission for our church, I loved that phrase. I loved it because I felt like that's what a mission was. And I just have this image in my mind when if you're willing to walk with God, then you're really letting him be your guide. And you're not running ahead. <laughs> you're not falling way behind. So we had a family reunion and I was kind of the epicenter of some conflict. <laughs> you know how they say... Well, I just don't think that's a humble thing for you to say. <laughs> oh, no, okay. <laughs> you're just putting too much importance on your role. <laughs> I'm kidding. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, well, but it made me, I mean, I definitely have had a couple of weeks of soul searching and wondering about myself, like what is okay about myself and what needs to go and what's not okay about myself and my approach and how I interact and value all of those things. And so as I worked through that, again, kind of these layers of thoughts, one of the thoughts that came to me was years ago, one of our coaches where I work did a guided meditation with us. We just, she just had us lay down on the floor and do some breathing and really try to like let go of all of our thoughts. So instead of being like wrapped up in what we're thinking to help us let go of that, to just think about our body and like first focus on your toes to see what's going on with your toes and your feet and kind of working your way up your body. And what happened was that I just started to weep, which sounds kind of strange. But as I like started letting go of all my thoughts that were kind of consuming all my attention, I felt like my body was starting to try to communicate with me, which is interesting in the context of our doctrine, because in our faith, we just believe that the, the definition of the soul is the body and the spirit united. So to us, everything that's physical is spiritual and everything that's spiritual is physical. There's no real separating those out. So it makes sense. But I just had this sense of that, uh, that there was all this pain and sorrow like stored up in my body and I had just been ignoring it, you know, staying in my head and ignoring those things. And that memory just came back to me really strongly. I think because it's tied to, how painful it is to even allow yourself to notice those things. We so want to just ignore them and pretend we're okay. And I think we're all kind of like (laughs) limping through lives with all, you know, kind of torn up. But it's just the idea of addressing it is like too painful. We don't want to look and see how we're wounded. And it made me think of Someone that we all loved as a child, I just remember these conversations about someone in our family who everyone loved and was concerned about. 
And they're talking about some painful thing she'd experienced and saying, but she, she won't talk about it and she won't address it. She just wants to ignore it. And I remember at the time recognizing that that was a sad thing, but in this experience of those last few weeks of like this self-evaluation, I totally got her. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> who wants to look at these really painful things <laughs> and not just ignore them? And so then I, next layer is kind of like, well, I'm like, well, why is it so painful to explore our weaknesses? And so I had listened to a talk a few weeks ago and this man, he shared the a story of his parents and his mom really uh, wanted to be unified with her husband. Like she just was like, we love each other, but I, I want this complete unity. And so she started praying for unity really intensely and for a substantial length of time. And she ended up getting really sick and ended up in the hospital on the verge of death. Everyone thought, you know, this is it. She's going to die in the next few days. But then ultimately she held on and she was able to survive that. But the point of that story was that that experience of being ill and of being on the brink of death and all the interactions that she had with her husband brought her to that unity that she wanted. I feel like I've lived long enough that that's terrifying. <laughs> you think, okay, if I examine my weaknesses, maybe I need to be a better budgeter, which I do. But if I start praying and saying, Heavenly Father, please help me be a better budgeter, what's going to happen? <laughs> like, my, ha my husband could lose his job. The car is not going to work for like six months. <laughs> like, what's going to happen if I actually sincerely address this and I really tell Heavenly Father, I'm actually truly, completely willing to surrender Sorry, to be who you want me to be. What are you going to require of me? <laughs> How hard is it going to be? And I was aware of this, like, I don't even want to pray about what I need to change because I'm afraid. Yeah, just afraid, which made me think again of Jordan Peterson. And I think it was Nietzsche who he quoted, who said, like, you can, I'm paraphrasing, but tell a lot about the character of a man based on how much honesty or truth he's able to tolerate. Like what you were saying, Leah, like this are we actually truly willing to just be stripped of all these things that we cling to and really like with complete courage and honesty, both view ourselves and also just say, there's nothing I want more than to walk with God. And I'm just willing to surrender everything to that. I think that's really beautiful, Marilee. I, I I love how deeply you've really considered this in terms of yeah, just how personally you've considered it. And I was reading about the daughters of Zion, and these are scriptures from Isaiah. They're also in Second Nephi, and how they're stripped. Well, there's a step-by-step -step process. I'm reading from this article how the daughters of Zion were gradually and sequentially disrobed and unendowed from their extravagant apparel. Do you remember in Isaiah how it talks about them having walking with stretched out necks and haughty, I don't know, mince eyes and mincing feet. <laughs> yeah. 
I should probably look up the verses, but there's quite a few. But there's this process where the Lord takes away their jewelry and accessories, their outer robes, cloaks, shawls, sashes, and finally their inner clothing, headdresses, and veils. The disrobing of the daughter of Zion left her burning instead of beauty. And to quote the scripture, she being desolate shall sit upon the ground. So when you're talking about, well, if I'm stripped of pride, what does that mean that I might have to endure? In this article, it's from, this is from noy.bookofmormon.central. Oh no, sorry, bookofmormoncentral.org, sorry. And the name of the article is, why does Isaiah, Isaiah prophesy of the daughter of Zion? I was just intrigued. It, tell, it talks about this ancient Akkadian myth about a goddess named Ishtar who descends to the underworld. As the goddess Ishtar descends into the netherworld, which is that place we don't want to have to go, I guess. I mean, could be seen that way at least. She progressively removes items of clothing until she is completely stripped of all her clothing, power, and glory. While this imagery of shame and nakedness is bleak and unflattering, the end of the story blazes with hope. Ishtar ultimately rises again from the underworld through the intervention of the gods. As she rises through the levels of the underworld, she is progressively endowed with additional pieces of her clothing until her full glory is restored. I have been aware of this metaphor of stripping of pride and also, but this puts it together for me, also the being robed in or clothed in robes of righteousness. When you talk about just that sense of, do I have to get to the brink of death to be able to have this? I think maybe in the fullest sense, we will have to carry some heavy crosses to be able to have those things purged from us or stripped from us. But as you're, I don't know, I'm just listening to you. I'm thinking Merrily is saying what this, what these scriptures are about. It's kind of like in the garden, there were lies. Part of that interaction with the source of lies of the, the adversary was, well, hide and put on this, these fig leaves. And that's sufficient. But then God says, no, I can clothe you in something far better. <laughs> and I think it's sort of that again, like take this off. Yeah, you'll be naked for a minute. You'll have to come out of hiding, but then you can be covered in these robes, these white, beautiful, pure, glowing robes of righteousness and all of those trinkets and gaudy things that really have no beauty, no real beauty. They may be an outward semblance of something you're trying to get to, but they're not, they're not real because they're really just symbols of what the world may esteem, but not symbols of anything of eternal value or worth maybe. It's really awesome. I think what, what Leah is talking about in that, in the talk that I had to give on Sunday about the rich young man, Elder Holland had shared this. He says in his character, characteristically memorable prose, C.S. Lewis imagines the Lord saying to us something like this, I don't want your time or your money or your work as much as I just want you, that tree you're pruning. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want the whole thing down. Oh, and that tooth, I don't want to drill it or crown it or fill it. I want to have it out. In fact, I want you to hand over to me your whole natural self and I will give you a new self instead. In fact, 
I will give you myself. My will shall become your will. So it is in a sense like just completely stripping yourself of all worry of all those things, all of the need to be seen of people or to be, especially in this day and age with all the social media, I think that's a huge a huge thing that can turn into something really destructive. There's also good things with it too. I don't want to knock the whole thing down, but I think it can be destructive. But just letting go of all of that and let letting uh, ourselves be in with his will, that we accept his will. The idea of being stripped down made me think of Viktor Frankl and in the mm. in the prison camp. And I feel like there is a point in there where he talks about that as awful as that is, when you are stripped of everything, that there's this opportunity for a kind of rebirth. All the worldly identities you hold onto in that circumstance were stripped away. And so not saying that that was a positive thing, but somehow there was this potential opportunity to recognize that these outer trappings don't mean much about who I really am inside. And I think too, just listening to you it, it strikes me, and I know this, that no matter what, you're going to pay a price. And so you kind of have to decide what price you're going to pay. Because you can say, the price to humble myself is too frightening. And I don't think I can do it. I don't think I can surrender myself and that completely. The price that you pay when you do that is that you're living your life at best wounded. <laughs> and in in pain and constantly running up against the the fruits of your weaknesses that cause sometimes really intense pain and struggling to navigate that and not really being able to. So being unwilling to surrender those things to God, that's the price that you end up paying. And that's not even, I mean, it's even worse than that. It's it's darkness, it's isolation, it's, it's aloneness. It's all of these things that you pay if you're unwilling to surrender those things to God. And on the other hand, you can seek God's grace and help and gather up your courage and and pay that price and start the process of surrendering to God. That initial cost feels high, but the reward is immense. It's a kind of a freedom. I, I just think of when I was a little girl that this experience always stayed with me, that I had a sticker in my foot. And it was there for a long time, and I was afraid to tell Dad (laughs) because I knew he would get out a needle, (laughs) and I did not want that needle. But, of course, just leaving the sticker there, it got worse and worse. It hurt more till I could barely walk on my foot. So I finally had to work up the courage and go to Dad and say, Dad, I've got this sticker in my foot. And, of course, he did. He got out a needle. It was a pretty big one. (laughs) (laughs) I had to go through that procedure, but upon getting the sticker out, the relief was immediate and so good. And then, you know, when you go through that, you wonder, why did I wait so long to come to dad (laughs) with the sticker in my foot? And I think that when we do learn to surrender to God, just like you guys said, that the gift is a new heart and it's significantly less pain in our day-to-day lives and significantly more peace and a much bigger just sense of freedom 
and light and wisdom and, and an ability to cope. Like one of the things that I read was, I think it was John Taylor. And I was like, I hope this is true of us. But he basically said in amongst the people of our faith that there's a calmness that's unusual. And he was speaking, mm. I think, probably in the late 1800s. So hopefully we retain that. But I think essentially saying, having gone through some really difficult things that they did at that time, that they knew God was their companion and they knew that they couldn't couldn't succeed doing things by themselves. So they didn't even need to try to do things by themselves. With God as their companion, they knew that they would be okay and they had a calmness in their lives which seems like such a gift at this intersection of time that we would want to seek. Some part of what you're saying, it makes me feel like humility and honesty kind of intersect in that, in that place of acknowledging and surrendering. Like in your case, dad didn't know that there was a sticker, but it took my mind. But as soon as you went to him, he's ready to help you. But when I think of God, I, I think of Adam and Eve and they're, they're hiding. <laughs> God knew where they were. And there was this deception that everything would be okay with fig leaves. There's a metaphor there that is consistent with that principle that you're sharing, that fig leaves will deteriorate. <laughs> they're not a sustainable place to stay. And hiding keeps you from really progressing. So to be honest and to acknowledge that God knows and he can help me, but I have to come out of hiding. I can't sort of, you know, pretend away part of me that only he can change or the sliver only he can extract. If the coat of skin, which is symbolic of the slaying of an animal or the shedding of blood or sacrifice atonement, if we stay in our place of wrapped in our pride, you said we get a new heart if we come out of it. And that new heart is provided by <laughs> the atonement of Jesus Christ. The sliver is extracted by that power, but we can't do it on our own. So Carla's talking about C.S. Lewis. <laughs> I don't want to just like put a filling in that tooth. If there's decay, I just want the whole thing out. I don't know about you guys, but I hate to go to the dentist, but that pretending that there's not decay, which I've done. <laughs> That's why I had a root canal recently. You know, anyway, I feel like I'm just kind of rambling because these are not, these are not ideas that are completely connected in my mind, but I feel like I'm hearing some connections that I would want to explore. I can't remember for sure. What is it that God says to Adam and Eve when they are hiding? Because he, he knows exactly where they are, just like you said. But he also, I feel like it's important to remember in that story that he's honoring their agency. I'm trying to remember what he says to him. Where are you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which I is can't remember exactly. It's kind of a significant question. Where are, yeah. where are you? Just another thing that ties in with, you know, how vulnerable it feels to allow ourselves to be stripped of pride. And that's a choice because God would never take away our agency. I mean, we can go through hell and back <laughs> and still just hang on tight to this illusion that 
that we've got it, that we're in charge, that we're not mistaken, that we're, you know, there's nothing we need to do to change or learn or whatever. I just love that our agency is so precious to him, that he allows us the choice. And so there's that component. And if we are going to be like, okay, what is it about myself that is mistaken? You know, if we're going to allow ourselves to be undressed, we can't. We can't unless unless we trust. It's such an incremental, like I, I can't like all of a sudden just, you know, make this wild leap of like I'm learning to trust a little at a time. But I mean, trusting that, trusting that this is going to work, that this, you know, we're seeing, you know, the needles coming at our foot, <laughs> just believing that there's going to be relief ahead. It, it, we just can't, you can't volunteer for, you know, having the sticker extracted without trusting that this is going to benefit you. Carla, did you find it? You were looking for it. I was just looking at Moses. So he said, and I, the Lord called unto Adam and said unto him, where goest thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I beheld that I was naked and I hid myself. And I, the Lord God said unto Adam, who told thee that thou wast naked? To ask where goest thou? And in Genesis, it's, it is where art thou? The, mm -hmm. Those are great questions to invite some humility if we're really honest about it. And Adam was. So I was yeah. naked and I, and I hid. <laughs> and the Lord says, well, I have a better option for you, basically. I mean, I, but I love, where, where are you going? Where is this going to take you? How sustainable is this path? How long will the yeah. fig leaves last for you? How, how, how good of a covering is that, really? Or, <laughs> I mean, there's probably any number of series or layers of quite, I, I feel like there's some real potential depth to where are you and where are you going? So I love that in Genesis we get, where are you? And I love that in Moses we get, where are you going? Mm -hmm. well, and I think too, like the whole who told you, it's like recognizing like where are those voices coming from? Recognizing oh, yeah. yes. like who told you that you were naked in the first place? Like to me, or are you listening to someone else? And uh, yeah. You're getting those thoughts. That's a great thought. I hadn't really yeah. thought of that question. That's another really great one. <laughs> yeah. I, lo I love that. Who told you you were naked? Mm. Who told Which you is an dead? invitation for him to figure it out. Like, for, like, he's not explicitly being told everything. He gets to figure it out. He gets to think about it. That kind of ownership is so powerful. Leah, you had brought up honesty. And then Linnea, you brought up faith and trust and how they're both, I think, super essential to humility. If we're un unwilling to be honest with ourselves, then we're stuck right there. Linnea, I, I really like that you brought up that we have to believe that, that the process is going to work. Or in other words, we have to have a lot of faith in our Heavenly Father, in Jesus Christ. And... If they are strangers to us, then that's going to be a lot harder to trust and to surrender. And then, but the more that we know them, well, Christ is known as the healer, that he would come with healing in his wings and that he is mm -hmm. mighty to save. Just thinking of that, like, do we really know that about him is key for our ability to be humble? Because the reality is, is like, on the one hand, I have my fear, but on the other hand, 
I know that when there have been times when I've been willing to trust and willing to surrender, that 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 healing power is immense. This kind of a funny thing that we struggle over and over again to trust again and trust again and trust again. But yeah, if we cast our mind back onto moments of of healing and of learning, then we can remember, oh yeah, that is his job. And I wasn't meant to face all of this on my own. I'm not the physician here. <laughs> I'm the patient. And it's a little foolish for me to like expend a lot of energy trying to heal myself. It's not even my job. Of course, we have a job. And Bunny, yeah, something you said made me think of this. Mac Maxwell said, the submission of one's will is really the only uniquely personal thing we have to place on God's altar. It is a hard doctrine, but it is true. The many other things we give to God, however, n- however nice that may be of us, are actually things he has already given us, and he has loaned them to us. But when we begin to submit ourselves by letting our wills be swallowed up in God's will, then we are really giving something to him. That quote is in addiction recovery program that the church has. And I stumbled on it several years ago, kind of on accident. And as I read through the addiction recovery things, I felt like I was encountering uh, Christianity at, in its rawest, truest form. As I read through it, and it, humility is woven in throughout it, and the image that kind of came to my to my mind how I live life so often is like that I'm trying to climb the side of a cliff and it's like full of boulders and rocks and it's hard going and I keep trying to climb and then I lose my footing and I fall and I like break an arm but then I just get back up and I try again and then I break my other arm and then I'm just like (laughs) trying again somehow to get up and I think I'm making it somewhere and finally after like injury after injury after injury after injury when I'm just like a mass of like broken bones and blood I finally just fall all the way to the bottom and I'm just laying there (laughs) helpless but then as I'm laying there helpless, it's like this this final surrender of like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I can't do this. <laughs> like, that's where Alma was when he said, oh, Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on me. I don't know if that's an exact quote. That was how it was written in a song. But where you get to the point where you're like, I am helpless. <laughs> I need to stop trying to save myself because it's really not working. And surrender that desire to save ourselves to God. This is from the addiction recovery program. It says, it says they, they're quoting scripture. They humbled themselves and put their trust in the true and living God. It says, when we took this step, we felt terrified of the unknown. What would happen if we humbled ourselves and surrendered our lives and wills completely to the care of God? We were convinced by past experiences that making a definite commitment was nearly impossible, given the insanity surrounding us in the world. At first, our efforts were anxious and halting. We kept giving the Lord our trust and then taking it back. Mm. I just felt like this just described how Mm -hmm. I live life. We worried, this is really sweet too, we worried that he would be displeased at our inconsistency and withdraw his support and love from us, but he didn't. 
Gradually, we allowed the Lord to demonstrate his healing power and the safety, the safety is following his away. Eventually, each of us realized we had not only given up our addictions, but we also had to turn our entire will and life over to God. As we did so, we found him patient and accepting of our faltering efforts to surrender to him in all things. Our ability to withstand temptation is now grounded in our continual submission to the will of the Lord. We express our need for the power available to us through the Savior's atonement, and we begin to feel the pow- that power within us, fortifying us against the next temptation. We have learned to accept life on the Lord's terms. I just love all of that, and I just felt like this is true Christianity. This is, mm. is the call the thing we are all called to do is that daily walk with God, a daily willingness to wake up and start your day by saying, what is your will for me today? We're so driven by our own agendas. And I just, it's, so, it's such a big thing to contemplate to actually do this and do it consistently. And But I love that this emphasis on God's patience and the fact that we'll be faltering and imperfect at it. But if we keep practicing, we'll get better. I just want to throw a question out because it's in, I'm, I'm thinking and I don't have, I'm not coming to an immediate answer. So we're also taught that we, we learn to be obedient and we learn wisdom line upon line and precept upon precept. So, you know, there's this incremental, I don't know, process. And yet it feels to me like to really be, to be successfully humble in any given moment is a sort of a complete, you know, letting go. It kind of feels like all or nothing, but we know that all or nothing isn't how we how we're able to progress. I'm going to say, I, I love the biblical, like in, is it in Isaiah where Isaiah is describing, you know, the gradual disrobing basically of the daughters of Zion. And also this, the, the Ishtar story where she, you know, gradually sheds everything. Part of it is like the practicing when you were saying that Marilee is he doesn't expect us to be like perfect all at once. He expects us to be worthy. And so as we're doing it line upon line and practicing, it's going to be a lifetime thing, a choice that we have to make constantly every day, every minute of the day when we have opportunities to do so. I don't think anybody's just, I'm here. I'm like doing the will of God now for the rest of my life. It's going to have to be that line upon line. I think that, I'm not sure if that's what you were asking. I agree with Carla. I think, at least in terms of what my experience has been, that I encounter certain instances where there needs to be a complete surrender, but that experience is just one layer. Marilee, you talked about weakness being the underbelly of a strength. So how sometimes what is a strength can also be a weakness. And sometimes I feel like my impetuousness can be a strength and also a weakness. And because of being impetuous, I I ended up being a pianist when I don't really know how to play. I mean, that was part of it. And the Lord asked me to do it. And I was like, yeah, I can do that. And after I played the three hymns that I felt like I taught myself how to play very poorly, I was out of hymns to play. And we have 
three hymns every Sunday. <laughs> For me, because I because I really prefer to not feel completely incompetent and just this sense of making a meeting awkward and uncomfortable for everyone when I mess up the music repeatedly. It was this process of, I knew that my anxiety around that, like my hands would tremble, my whole, my heart would just be, I would, I, I was sweaty and my, I was like wiping my fingers, on my, like getting ready to play. And I knew that was pride. Even now, I sometimes find myself feeling that nervousness, but I, I look at this picture of Christ that's in the room across from where the piano is, and I try to remind myself, you're doing this for him. And there's layer, been layers and layers, but I, I could have just said, you know what, let's just listen to the music on the iPad and sing along. <laughs> that's going to be better. But so it's like this, whole, like I kind of had this whole surrender. I knew the situation, but I feel like the layers were represented in every Sunday. And then also encountering other situations where I felt like the same principle was in, was in play and I needed this whole surrender in this other aspect of my life and that there would be layers so that I might surrender every Sunday by, by, or every week by the practice and the preparation and the praying, please help me to let go of fear so that I can know that this is, that I'm really offering this gift to thee that help, help me get to this place where I don't care about what the congregation thinks about how I play, but I play because I love them and I want to contribute to their experience with thee. But I feel like that's what Carla was saying, that it's like this, that there is a surrender, but it's also layered. <laughs> One of the steps for addiction recovery is hope, which just seems like important <laughs> in context of <laughs> all of this. <laughs> And in that section, it says, we should not underestimate or overlook the power of the Lord's tender, mercy, tender mercies. The simpleness, the sweetness, and the constancy of the tender mercies of the Lord will do much to fortify and protect us in the troubled times in which we do now and will yet live. When words cannot provide the solace we need or express the joy we feel, when it is simply futile to attempt to explain that which is unexplainable, when logic and reason cannot yield adequate understanding about the injustices and inequities of life, when mortal experience and evaluation are insufficient to produce a desired outcome, and when it seems that perhaps we are so totally alone, truly we are blessed by the tender mercies of the Lord and made mighty even unto the power of deliverance. I think that doesn't answer it exactly, but there's something about that, about the about just trusting the tender mercies of the Lord, trusting that this is a process, knowing that overcoming our weaknesses, it seems to be like peeling an onion or like cleaning my house. <laughs> if I finally get the clutter off the floor and vacuum, then I feel good about that. But once the clutter is off the floor and I vacuum, then I notice that the windows haven't been washed. And then once I notice the windows haven't been <laughs> washed, I notice that the walls need to be painted, you know, but as long as there's just clutter on the floor, I'm not noticing the windows at all. And that there's some grace in that, you know, that Heavenly Father says, like, I'm not going to make you change everything all at once. Like, let's find a good starting place. Let's work on this. And as you get better at this, you're going to automatically start noticing other areas. Like, that just makes me think of the, the atheist gentleman who, who valued that Christians value humility. And 
and part of what I thought about that is humility has to be inherited within true Christianity because you're coming to know God. That's the whole point of it is to, to know him and to love him. And if you start to know anything about Jesus, there's no way for you to not notice a lot of weaknesses in yourself <laughs> because it, in comparison, <laughs> I think it's easier to have pride when you don't know anything about God because you know, you're not comparing yourself to much. <laughs> but as soon as you like put yourself, you know, here you're in the picture and there's God, you're like, oh yeah, okay, I've got some things on. <laughs> and humility would become kind of necessary and automatic. <laughs> Your house metaphor worked really well for me. <laughs> I think when we when we talk about any you know, desirable attribute, humility, whatever. I think it's, for me, this is just a really common reaction. I'm like, wow, this looks really good. Yeah, I, this is great. And we keep talking and I'm like, I don't know if I, <laughs> you know, if I can do it, if I can follow through, if, you know, there's just so much. But again and again and again, if we trust God, he doesn't make us run faster like what Frank says. He doesn't make us run faster than we can walk. Which is <laughs> anyway, yeah, he does he just he knows us and he loves us and he knows what we can handle. Like Nephi said, right? He doesn't give us any commandment that we can't follow through on. So we can trust him that we'll eventually notice those windows when we have the capacity to, that's comforting to me. Thanks. Heavenly Father recognizes our capacities and he will provide a way for us to do what he invites us to do. His knowing us and merely what you said about our knowing him and how what you knew about dad, like ultimately at some point, the relief of removal. And I think they say something about this in the stuff that you sent us from the class on addiction recovery. If, when we get to a point where the pain of being where we are exceeds the pain of anticipated change, then that's usually when we're ready to act. But in that process, to have a sense of that hope, and the hope, I think, stems from a sense of knowing, however imperfectly, enough of a sense of who God is and who his son is to trust that maybe this could be a better way. My mind went back to what Carla said about the rich young man, the rich young ruler who came to Christ and wanted some change, but ultimately went away mourning because what was required for change was a stripping, sell all that you have and come follow me. And he wasn't quite ready, at least not at that point, we assume from his going away sorrowing. And I think about, well, he was keep, he said, I've done all the things from my youth, I've kept all the commandments. And I thought about the scripture where it's in the New Testament, the sheep are, sheep are separated from the goats and the, the goats, <laughs> those who are not on the right hand of God say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name have we not cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works. We did all the things. And his responses to them, I never knew you. And in the Joseph Smith translation, it's, you never knew me. And I think mm -hmm. about that rich young ruler having done all the things, but I think, I think about myself 
and how I can do the things, but am I doing them out of a motive that's ultimately wrapped up in myself in some way? Like how will others perceive me or because I don't want to feel guilty or (laughs) something other than a love of God keeps so I can do all the things, but really not know him. And so not be able to trust that like the rich young ruler that I could give away all that I have and it would actually be so much better and he could give me so much more. This conversation just brings my mind to that principle of the process. I don't know. I know it's something we've talked about, but it's just a different angle of why am I doing what I'm doing and how does it tie me and is it helping to tie me to him so that I can trust that, you know, to let him be my surgeon and the healer of my soul. I've been struck for a long time how in our scriptures, humility and strength are often like tied together. There's a place where it says they wax stronger and stronger in their humility. I think in the the world, the world maybe misses that humility is a strength and that there's, there's power and strength in it. And so I just wanted to ask, how is humility strong? How does it make us stronger? I think it gives us freedom. And I think it also gives us the ability to be able to to share the light of Christ with other people, which is a really strong power in this world to help bring light, just keep bringing it in. And it helps us to bridle our passions. There's that saying about the man who's the strongest is the one that bridles his tongue. When we're truly humble, our spirits are the masters of of our passions and things like that, and we're in line with the Savior. And I think that that's the ultimate strength there. I like that you said that. I know the talk you gave on Sunday, you mentioned, you read a scripture that's, it made me think of the one, I think in Doctrine and Covenants, it says, light cleaveth unto light, virtue unto virtue. Light begetteth light, light virtue begets virtue, something like that. I just really think that that is really true. And the opposite is true too. Like when we think of, of humility as a small and simple thing, well, part of its power is that if we embody that into our lives, then it affects the people close to us in really positive ways. If we bring light into our lives, there's more light in our home, right? And then our children can have access more easily to that additional light. And so, but the opposite is true. If we have less light, if we're very prideful, that creates a different kind of ripple. I've seen that at work with people who really try to live, not just casually, but really actively trying to live good principles in their lives. I've seen how it touches and influences the people mm-hmm. around them and increases the, the potential for light for the people whose lives they're touching. And then I think the opposite is true with the really negative things that we do. So anyway, what you just said about it's an opportunity to increase light in the world. And I think I just think that because of ripple effects, that that's much more significant than we think. What about you, Leah? What do you think about how, how does humility make us strong? It's an interesting question for you to ask. It's an aspect, as I've been thinking about humility, that that I've explored that I just feel like is probably a thread of what humility means that is especially needful for me to think about. When you ask that question, this experience that I've shared with both you and Linnea before, 
it's been years, but it still kind of sticks with me, like as an object lesson that I feel like there's more for me to extract meaning from and understanding from. But when we did a, a handcart trek to sort of help us have a different sense of what the pioneers experienced and have our own experience with that, one of the experiences along the, the trail with the handcarts that we had was the woman's pole, which was intended to be a particularly challenging stretch and to sim kind of simulate the experience of one of the handcart companies when the Mormon battalion was formed and a bunch of men were taken to go form that battalion. And so there were much fewer men and women were left with more of the weight to pull. So only women participated and girls participated in this portion of the, the trek for us. I happened to be the mom in our little family and the girls in that group were pretty athletic and just really ambitious. And we were like, this is going to be awesome. <laughs> we are going to charge the, this. So it was this rocky, like really, like the boulders were really, uh, there were, I say boulders, but there were big rocks in this road and it had been washed out by rain. And so it was really uneven and, and it was a legitimate challenge. It was pretty steep and we were so excited. And I think you guys probably remember that we like, we charged and we we're like making good progress up the hill. And then, you know, we couldn't just like run all the way up the hill. So, but we use as much momentum as we can. And then we're like pushing it over this rough spot. But we were like towards the, some of the later ones to leave and some of the ones that had made it up the top. We're so excited to come back down and help other people. In my mind, as I was watching this happen, happening, I was thinking, don't help us. We got this. We don't want help. We want to do this by ourselves. <laughs> and they came and we're like, we're good. We're good. You can help them. Like, help those people struggling behind us. We got this. And they just didn't listen. And pretty soon it was like, I'm not even pushing the handcart. These other people are doing it. They took this from me. I wanted this. I wanted this struggle. And I feel like there's like lots of angles that you could look at this experience, but it troubled me so deeply after that experience, people were like crying and just like filled with like, wow, that was so amazing. I was like, that was stupid. That was the dumbest thing. <laughs> Men were like, wow, that was just to watch you guys struggle and not be able to help. And I was thinking, I wouldn't have let you help. I don't want help. I wanted to do that. <laughs> um, and, and knowing that I, that that was not a good way to, that that was, that was the underbelly telling me something about, about me that, that I needed that experience to have. And uh, yeah, so when I think about humility being strength, I think for me, it's the strength to acknowledge my weakness and to acknowledge the beauty of the journey being something that's a collaboration with God and with others and how others can celebrate when they get to join in and they get to do something that facilitates working together and that that too often my perceived strengths are really my weakness. The real strength is what you said when we fall to the bottom of the mountain and we acknowledge to God, I, yeah, I need help. <laughs> I can't do this on my own. So that's mm -hmm. what comes to mind for me. 
That's really beautiful. And I don't know if it's comforting to you at all, but I felt the same way about the woman's pool that I did as well. <laughs> like, what? That was a... <laughs> I'm thinking yeah. there has to be one more lesson in that. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure there's well, so many. I mean, you guys are internalizing, but I think, you know, there's something to um, allowing people autonomy. To struggle sufficiently. That, that, I mean, that, yeah, yeah. There's something to that. There's, I mean, this is how our children feel when we, when we look at them and we're like, you didn't dress yourself right. Let me do that for you. <laughs> or when they're tying their shoes, like, I got it. I got it. Yeah. Like, can I yeah. do that for you? I got it. I do it myself. Leah, ever since you introduced the idea of proving contraries, it comes to my mind over and over again, because there is, there is this true aspect of like, yeah, we need to give people space to work through things. It's part of trusting them and trusting God too, to not take over and let people struggle a little bit and work through what they need to. Our kids definitely need that. That's huge. So that's on the one hand. And then balancing that, the contrary to that is, is this collaborative thing and that we need to rely on God and uh, allow others the joy of helping us, the connection that comes from letting other people step into your life and serve you in ways that are meaningful to them. So yeah, a lot to balance there. I feel like for me, when I considered this question about strength and humility, I just thought, well, when you don't have humility, you're not addressing your weaknesses, which means that you're just walking around wounded and crippled. And how are you strong in that scenario? How are you strong enough to deal with the tragedies that are going to appear in your life and the struggles? And how are you going to give your children what they need? And if you are the walking wounded, you know, and we all are. I think that Carla, you mentioned this too, that just the freedom that comes from being willing to go through that process of noticing your weaknesses, of taking them to God, of allowing him to be the surgeon, <laughs> put you under the knife as it will, but you come through that process stronger, just much more capable and able-bodied, <laughs> able-spirited. Linnea, how does humility make us strong? Just a simple, for example, I really want to paint and I haven't painted much for the last few years. I've during the winter watched more YouTube videos about painting than I like I should be painting instead. But one of the one of the common themes when someone is, you know, trying to help, yeah, and still in others this how to progress, how to get better. You hear over and over again, so paint a lot, do it a lot, paint paint every day. But be honest with yourself about the mistakes that you're making and change them because you're not going to be a better painter if you keep doing the same dumb, <laughs> you know, keep painting the same dumb paintings over and over again. The only, only, only way to progress and to become stronger, even in this, you know, the world of art is to be humble. And it's painful. It's painful to look, to have someone come look over your shoulder and say, well, <laughs> I can see all kinds of things wrong with that. 
you, so you can either be offended and you can be like, well, I'm just going to keep doing it and you're stupid. <laughs> or, <laughs> or you can be like, okay, yeah, you're right. And how do I fix that? How do I, how do I progress? So that's one thing that I think of. And this may not be super relevant, but it's really been in my heart lately through my wonderful husband who loves genealogy and believes that we are all related. <laughs> we live in we live in a town that has the last name of one of our favorite aunts. And my mom and dad have said, oh, you know what? I, you, you might be related to some of the people in those that town because her husband may have been related to the founder anyway. And I'm like, not likely, probably not. Plus, you know, she married him and she's my aunt. He was, you know, he's just my uncle because he married my aunt. And we found out that, yes, indeed, he was born in this town. So Frank was at a funeral and there was this woman. I'm telling the story too long, but I have to tell the story. So there was this woman who came up to him and she's like, yeah, it must be hard for you as an outsider in this town, you know, to feel like you belong. And it, his interpretation of that was that she was just sorry for him that he wasn't related <laughs> like everybody else in the town is. And he's like, well, my wife has an uncle that might have been from the family of founders. And she's like, really? And she said, yeah. He said, yeah, her aunt, Lydia's aunt married him great aunt and i don't know how she knew, i don't know how she drew this conclusion she's like oh, great aunt julia <laughs> it's like yeah it's Linnea's great aunt julia she's like oh great aunt julia everybody loves great aunt julia she's everybody's favorite aunt and so frank's rehearsing this tale to me and i'm like it could have been a different julia we didn't know that that's the same julia that we traced <laughs> We looked at the genealogy, and and the last person to have any input on Great Aunt Julia's husband was a woman from our town. It was Elizabeth Snow, <laughs> and and he was born here, and he graduated from this high school. And so then, you know, she drags Frank to her brother and another brother, and they're all like, oh, "Great Aunt Julia!" They all have these like things that they remember about her and and I'm processing this and I'm thinking well what are my memories and I I didn't get to know her very long because she was quite I mean, she died over a hundred but I have just a couple of childhood experiences and we also encountered her her face in that video of mom and dad's wedding and just this immediate like my heart just suddenly was like <gasps> Aunt Julia, that's Aunt Julia, you know, just like this fondness, this affection for her. And I was telling my daughter, Maria, what I remember about her as a little child was her looking into my face and feeling truly seen, not only seen, but appreciated, like there's this twinkle in her eye, kind of of humor. And, and it was almost... Like if I hadn't felt safe with her, it could have almost felt intimidating. Like oh, she sees everything, you know, and I'm just reflecting about that. And I'm thinking, you don't have that experience with someone who is consumed with, with themselves. You don't have that experience when someone is struggling with arrogance or struggling much with pride. You, you're not seen. It's sort of an empty 
emptier experience. And, you know, I don't want to attribute just all these things to this woman that I don't know well, but I do think that it's really powerful when we're truly humble that our impact on other people, the people that we encounter, we can see them because we're not all obsessed with our own stuff. We're, we're truly interested in them. And the, the influence and impact that we have on that person is so much more profound when we're humble. Ironically, it's not what you see on TV. You know, talk show hosts are interviewing their guests and just like dying, you know, for this opportunity to say this clever thing. And so you just get, have this whole empty conversation that might have some laughs in it, but just is so profound to encounter someone who's not all about themselves, who's humble enough to see you and be curious about you and appreciate you. It makes me think of that celestial condition where we see as we are seen and know as we are. Yeah. I think that seeing implies loving, even if it's not because we see just people in this, you know, sense of not being aware of their challenges or their weaknesses. I think it's being able to see those and and nonetheless feel this sense of love and appreciation for their journey, for what we do understand, for what we do know. And I think that the flip side of that in my mind, or at least a flip side, is that we're simultaneously able to see ourselves better and be able to be empathetic and compassionate about weaknesses in others because we're willing to see the weaknesses in ourselves and ask God for help. So we're less likely when we see others to see flaws and more mm -hmm. likely see a work in progress and mm -hmm. be able to appreciate them more and also be okay with who we are and that by that same principle. That's yeah, lovely. That. Yeah. Yeah. I love each what you all have shared. And I think for me, coming back to uh, one of the big like awakenings for me in this topic was the idea of that that having humility is is walking with God and and God is the source of light. And so when I'm walking my own path, then I'm farther from in proximity. I, I'm not mm -hmm. proximal to that light. But when I decide that, yeah, the sacrifices that I need to make to walk with God are worth it, then I bring myself into proximity of his light with all of the implications <laughs> of having that light as my as my companion in my daily walk. I think it's such such a big thing to work towards. And ironically, I'm humbled by the idea <laughs> of uh, attempting that daily walk, but I have a sense of, of a greater desire to do that.